Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Something to note about secret societies. All of the groups covered on this show operate in secret. The details included in this episode are based on extensive research, but ultimately can never be 100% verified, except by society members themselves. For every kernel of truth, there's a swath of misinformation, strategically crafted by each group to protect their true goals and practices. And this place is very dreadful and dangerous. Many tall palm trees stand about the town like a dense forest. This place is terrible and difficult of access. For here live fierce pagan Saracens who attack travelers at fords on these rivers. And lions are found here in great numbers. So said a Russian abbot called Daniel, describing his pilgrimage to the Holy Land in 1106 and 1107. Pilgrims like Daniel were vulnerable in this unknown climate, as subject to the ravages of the natural world, like Daniel's lions, as they were to the local Muslim forces called Saracens by contemporary Christians. Their saving grace was the Knights Templar. The Knights guided pilgrims like Daniel through the dangerous and dry Middle East, their white mantles gleaming in the hot sun. Red crosses decorated their clothing, a constant reminder of their values. To Christian men and women, they seemed pure and righteous. At first. Before they grew prideful and gluttonous, surrounded by the riches of their private empire. Perhaps these knights weren't the godly warriors they seemed to be. Perhaps they were the most sacrilegious thing in all of the Holy Land, hiding corruption, sex rituals, and downright heresy behind their temple doors. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Greg Polson. And this is Secret Societies, a ParCast original. Every Thursday, we examine history's most exclusive organizations from around the world and try to shine a light on the truth behind these mysterious groups. From the Illuminati to the Black Hand to the Order of the Nine Angles, we'll explore how much impact each secret society actually had on the world around them. This is our first of two episodes of the Knights Templar, a religious order of warriors that fought for Christianity in the early Middle Ages and became extraordinarily rich and powerful while doing so. This week, we'll explore how the Knights were established during the Crusades and how their multinational power increased in the subsequent centuries. We'll also cover the group's secret practices and rituals. Next week, we'll track the dark rumors about what the Knights Templar were really doing and the political retribution that destroyed their organization and sullied its name.
the Knights Templar have slinked their way into popular media for centuries. These religious warriors appeared in the 12th century epic poem Parsifal and the early 19th century novels of Sir Walter Scott like Ivanhoe. And today, many people know of the organization thanks to popular films like National Treasure and Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Even video games like Assassin's Creed have taken on these mysterious medieval knights. Often, the portrayals are less than flattering, focusing on the extraordinary power they wielded at their height in the 13th century and the deep corruption that they harbored. Accusations of heresy and secret ritualized sex between brothers have haunted the order since its demise in the early 1300s. Theirs is a story of honorable origins, a remarkable rise, and the prideful sin that cometh before the fall. But modern accounts of the order are fictional, and even the accusations that swirled around the knights in their final days may have been exaggerated due to personal vendettas. The real story of the order's secrets is less clear. But it begins around 1119 in Jerusalem, governed since 1099 by a Christian king. Baldwin II was installed in Jerusalem thanks to the success of the First Crusade. Europeans had stormed the largely Muslim, or as they called it, Saracen, Middle East. Their aim was to please God by securing the many sites they associated with Jesus Christ and Christian history in and around Jerusalem, hence their name for the region, the Holy Land. There were political motivations for the Crusades. The First Crusade, spearheaded by Pope Urban II, was launched as an effort to aid the Christian Byzantine Empire, which was under attack by Muslim Turks. But that political motivation and several subsequent centuries of difficult and costly fighting were propelled and sustained by an extraordinary depth of religious passion. In early medieval history, the Catholic Church was much more than a place of worship. Christianity dictated everything from the rhythms of daily life, centered around the local church's clanging bells, to the bigger questions of meaning and purpose. The lives the church shepherded were often difficult and unforgiving. There were few luxuries available to ordinary people, and even the most privileged aristocrats couldn't have imagined the creature comforts that today we consider normal. Ever-pleasant temperatures around the house, controlled through a convenient thermostat, for example, would have been unthinkable, not to mention regular baths. Plus, a strictly hierarchical society meant there was little hope for the kind of economic advancement or change that motivates many people in the modern world. Comfort and hope were the province of the church and the God it represented. And going to the Holy Land was a way of pleasing church and God, of furthering the true faith, and of gaining entrance to heaven when this earthly slog was over. Therefore, Hugh of Payens, French knight and member of the old Champagne aristocracy, wasn't unusual when he reportedly chose to travel to Jerusalem and visit Christendom's holy places. He was more unusual in that around 1119, he's said to have visited Christian King Baldwin II to explain that he wanted to stay permanently and why. He longed to truly show God his devotion. He begged to take vows of chastity, poverty, and obedience before the patriarch, or religious leader, of Jerusalem. 
Plus, he had valuable skills that would help the Holy Land's Christians fight for the true faith. He would use his prowess as a knight to protect pilgrims traveling between holy sites. The king agreed and granted Hugh and any men he recruited a base on the Temple Mount in a wing of what was then the royal palace. It was also, as legend had it, the site of the Holy Temple of Solomon, hence the name these men would soon adopt, the Knights Templar. In 1120, the new religious order was formed. This history is almost 1,000 years old, and some of the details are hard to verify. For example, some scholars have suggested that the idea of protecting pilgrims may actually have come from King Baldwin rather than Hugh, but the story overall is reliable. It makes sense that King Baldwin was amenable to Hugh's request, despite the fact that warrior monks were an unconventional idea at the time. The services Hugh wanted to provide were desperately needed. Although Jerusalem was firmly in Baldwin's hands, the surrounding areas were far less secure from so-called Saracen forces. These forces ranged from bandits to Muslim warriors seeking to regain their lands from the Christian invaders. The knights guarding pilgrims on their journey also complemented the mission of another religious order already operating around the Christian Middle East, the Knights Hospitaller. The Knights Hospitaller provided medical services and housing to pilgrims along the roads through the Holy Land. Their practical aid likely inspired Hugh of Payens and made his idea amenable to King Baldwin. There's no evidence to suggest that Hugh's motivations were any more complicated than Baldwin's. His offer of religious service likely stemmed from simple religious devotion and pity for the plight of weaker pilgrims. As a knight, he was armed and relatively well-fed, living off the money collected from home estates. He had horses. He could protect himself. And thus, he could travel to God's holy sites with relative confidence and security. This wasn't the case for many of the other pious men he saw on the road. They often succumbed to lions and the Saracen forces that attacked stragglers outside of Jerusalem. Eventually, these remaining Saracens gave Hugh of Payans and his knights a second purpose. The Crusades were far from over in 1120. The Saracens still held much of the Middle East, and the church would need brave, dedicated warriors if it ever wanted to install Christian rulers throughout these lands. Hugh of Payans and Knights Templar wouldn't just protect pilgrims from attack. They would also actively defend and eventually expand Christian territories in the Middle East. But the earliest days of the Knights Templar showed little evidence of the glorious victories to come. Their first nine years were decidedly modest, according to medieval historians. Hugh of Payans recruited only nine men to his cause, and they dressed only in clothes cast off by pious donors. They were installed in the section of the Temple Mount donated by King Baldwin, but it was in a state of disrepair. Overall, they were a humble order despite the knightly, meaning aristocratic, origins of Hugh and his first recruits. The order's internal mythology emphasized this origin story. 
Its seal, which portrayed two knights sharing one meager horse, hinted at poverty, as did its tales of the modest first nine brothers. It was a fine origin story for a religious order at a time when many pious Catholics were trying to move towards more ascetic, less materialistic behaviors. Also a fine origin story if you're trying to downplay your worldly power and play up your connection to godliness. But the origin story was also, perhaps, the first thread woven in the Templars' shroud of mystery, because contemporary scholars aren't sure this mythology is accurate. Medievalist Malcolm Barber, one of the world's leading scholars on the Knights Templar, explained that their beginnings were likely fairly illustrious. Around 1127, before those first mythical nine years were up, Hugh of Payens traveled to Western Europe to recruit more men. Barber also pointed out that the order was officially recognized by the Pope at the Council of Troy soon afterward, a boon he was unlikely to give an order with only nine men. The Templars more likely recruited close to 30 knights in their first nine years. But Hugh's 1127 trip wasn't just about recruitment, it was also about soliciting financial contributions. Thanks to their own aristocratic backgrounds, Hugh and his knightly brothers had personal properties and fortunes, which they each donated to their brotherhood upon joining. Thanks to those, the order wouldn't have been poor, not even from its first breath, but they also solicited significant contributions of land from other pious nobles, particularly in France, all before their papal recognition. It's even possible that the British king gave a donation of gold and silver. Such impressive gifts certainly contradicted the Knight Templar's modest self-image. Two knights would not have needed to share one horse, even at the very early stages of the order. But the gifts wouldn't have been surprising in this period either, even to a relatively new organization. They would have been the result of that same deep-seated religious belief that led to the Crusades themselves. Even kings needed to ensure the positive reception of their souls at heaven's gate and showed piety by donating to an order that protected pilgrims, especially since at the time, the Crusades were seen as an incredibly holy and important effort. The Knights were set up for success from their very first days. The seeds of their future wealth were sown almost immediately, especially because many of their first donations came in the form of land, and land in this era was the source of wealth. Largely because it came with serfs in hand. This was the basis of the feudal system. Peasants were considered part and parcel with land. If it changed hands, the loyalties and taxes of the serfs living on it changed hands along with it. Serfs weren't allowed to move or leave their lord's property without his permission. Ostensibly, they benefited from the system by receiving their lord's protection, mostly from other lords' attacks. Again, though, deep religious belief colored the system for everyone who participated in it. Social position was considered intrinsic and immovable, a God-given lot on earth. Everything went back to the lord on high, and everyone from serf to king accepted that as fact, never questioning the need to pour money and trust into God's causes. Luckily for the Lord's warriors, this included the humble Knights Templar. Who were never as humble as they would have liked people to think, and who were about to get even less humble. 
Coming up, we'll examine the order's transition into one of the most powerful players in all of Europe and the Middle East. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Now back to the story. The Knights Templar were established with the blessing of King Baldwin of Jerusalem around 1120. Hugh of Payens was its leader, and he quickly took on the title of Grand Master. After seven years operating his new order in Jerusalem, he traveled to Europe to solicit donations and new recruits amongst the pious nobility. And in 1129, at the Council of Troy, he obtained official papal recognition for the Knights Templar as a religious order. This was accompanied by the creation of the order's Latin rule, or list of tenets and practices. The text was a collaborative effort, written through the committee discussions of seven abbots, two archbishops, ten bishops, and several noblemen, as well as Hugh of Payens. The abbot, St. Bernard of Clairvaux, was preeminent amongst them, but each of these men scrutinized every article on the list. These laid out the rules and regulations that would govern the order, and considering they were drafted by a group of men who were mostly not part of the order, they weren't particularly secret. Many of them dictated a serious monastic life. The charter demanded celibacy abstention from idle talk and laughter, and adherence to a strict schedule of daily prayers. Clothing was carefully monitored. Knights who joined the order would wear white mantles decorated with a red cross, while those of a lesser birth, who joined as so-called sergeants, would wear brown and black. The rule, as in other monastic orders, was to be enforced through a system of penances. For mild transgressions, a knight might be barred from wearing his white mantle. For gross violations, brothers would be thrown out of the Knights Templar altogether. But there were some notable differences between the Knights Templar, as the rule shaped them, and a typical monastic order. Firstly, some allowances were made for knights on the road who were asked to try to preserve the rule as far as their strength permits. For example, they weren't expected to observe the full regiment of monastic daily prayers during long rides through dangerous territory. Knights could also join temporarily, and unlike a typical monk, they were allowed three horses and one employee a squire to help them care for their steeds, maintain their armor, and prepare for battle. Sergeants were also allowed one horse. And a particular note allowed the order to possess houses, lands, and serfs, although individual members were expected to forfeit their personal properties to the group. These allowances were necessary for the order to maintain a steady income that would provide the horses, armor, and supplies needed to defend pilgrims. Other monastic orders had lands, and sometimes even dependent priories at the time. 
But in the early Middle Ages, monasteries were more or less individual houses. They didn't conceive of themselves as unified orders, like these new knights, nor were their expenses nearly so large. And thus, the Templars needed special privileges to support their work. Despite these unusual aspects, there were few who saw the order's Latin rule as anything but a genuine attempt to create and regulate a new kind of order within the tradition of other monastic groups. Knights around Europe became brothers, and other nobles, amongst whom the Crusades were a popular religious cause, made donations. Chapters were set up across the areas that are now France, Spain, and England to manage local holdings. The Knights Templar grew with each passing year in size, reach, and wealth, all while stamping the two poor knights sharing one horse on their seal. Already, there was a discrepancy between how the order wanted to be seen and the power that, in reality, it increasingly held. This gap only widened in the late 1130s and 1140s. The Pope released several papal bulls, or special proclamations, praising the knights, putting them directly under his authority, and granting them even more special privileges. Namely, he gave them the right to their own clergy and an exemption from paying tithes, the church's customary tax of 10% on all wealth in Christendom. By 1150, the order was said to be using its wealth to generate letters of credit, a pilgrim might deposit his money in Paris and, with his letter in hand, withdraw an equivalent amount in the Holy Land. This basic banking service was natural for the Knights, considering that they had money on hand in both the East and the West. And from there, it's no surprise that their financial activities expanded. They started giving loans, even to important men like the kings of France and the Pope himself. Technically, the order made no money from these transactions. Within the Catholic Church, it was sinful to charge interest. But realistically, considering the fact that they were exchanging currencies, it wouldn't have been hard for the Knights Templar to sneak in small surcharges for their services. The order was spreading its wings, and there was no longer any pretense of humble poverty. Its story became one of humble origins, that through the righteousness of its mission and its conduct, it rose to be a powerful arm of God on earth. The idea that wealth and power represented God's approval wasn't so alien in the Middle Ages, when the Pope was one of the wealthiest and most powerful people on earth. But there were some critics who were skeptical about the basic premise of the order. They wondered if it was possible to marry true piety with the violent work of a warrior and the worldly work of handling money. But especially considering the Pope's stamp of approval, these critics were lost in an overwhelming appreciation for the noble knights. So things continued for several hundred years through multiple crusades. The knights experienced ups and downs, acquiring and sometimes losing new holdings in the Middle East and around Europe, including, briefly, the entire island of Cyprus. They built fortresses and lost them to Muslim enemies. They faced territorial conflicts with the Knights Hospitaller, who, inspired by the Templars, took on a militant as well as charitable role. And they were often embroiled in political conflicts with European rulers. But they weathered them all, 
maintaining a vast system of wealth all the while. This revenue was necessary for maintaining the Order's knights. With their horses and weapons, as well as its auxiliary members, they were spending their money as fast as it was coming into the Templar coffers. At the height of their power in the 13th century, their overall numbers, including knights and sergeants, as well as employees and dependents, was likely close to 20,000 men. New, more detailed rules were added to the original Latin rule by 1260 to govern this increasingly populous empire. They were called the French rule for the language they were written in. The choice of French for these new clauses was natural, considering the French origins of the Knights Templar and the fact that the largest section of their Western holdings were still in France. But it's nevertheless telling. French was a vernacular language, spoken by far more people than Latin. The rule was not secret. It was meant to be read and understood by all the knights and consulted by leaders within the hierarchy, because it largely addressed practical matters. The new clauses of the French rule can be broken down into several categories. 202 of the clauses covered duties and responsibilities, the military hierarchy of the order, and the ways discipline should be imposed on brothers. Essentially, these addressed the knightly aspect of the Knights Templar. 107 clauses, similar to the original Latin rule, regulated conventual or monastic life. 158 described the way different chapters should run, including the nature of penances, which could be handed out locally. The last edition, probably added around the late 1250s, included 113 more clauses on penances. These were mainly in the form of examples, showcasing punishments that had, in the Templars' history, been meted out. The edition also included a kind of coda to the rule, which described the reception ceremony of new knights. This section in particular is interesting, considering that later this ritual would be subject to intense scrutiny and accusations. But in the Knights Templar's French rule, it was laid out clearly and with great detail. The brothers of the chapter, wherever it might be, assembled and the new recruit or postulant was brought before them. With gravity reminiscent of a marriage ceremony, the brothers were asked whether they knew of any reasons why this man should not be admitted. Then, barring any objections, the prospective brother was led into a separate room, where several experienced brothers explained the hardships of life in the order. They also emphasized that personal interests were subject to the needs of the brotherhood and the demands of religious servitude. If, after this, he still wished to join the Knights, the existing members of the Brotherhood were once more asked if they had any objections. Then a speech was given, of which the following is a small piece. Good brother, you ask a very great thing, for of our order you see only the outer appearance. It seems to you that you would be well at ease, but you do not know the harsh commandments which lie beneath, for it is a painful thing for you, who are your own master, to make yourself a serf to others. For with great difficulty will you ever do anything you wish. For if you wish to be in the land this side of the sea, you will be sent the other side. If you wish to sleep, you will be woken. And if you sometimes wish to stay awake, you will be ordered to rest in your bed. 
Finally, after this warning, the prospective brother was allowed to make his vows of obedience, chastity, and poverty. He promised to conquer and defend Jerusalem, never to leave the order, nor to wrongfully deprive any Christian of his property. And the last step, according to the rule, and then the one who holds the chapter should take the mantle and place it round his neck and fasten the laces. And the chaplain brother should say the prayer to the Holy Spirit, and the one who makes him a brother should raise him up and kiss him on the mouth. And it is customary for the chaplain to kiss him also. Today, perhaps the oddest part of the ceremony are the kisses on the lips between the new brother, the one who initiates him, and the chaplain. But in the early Middle Ages, it was common to give a non-romantic kiss of peace, or holy kiss, both in spontaneous greeting and in ritualized religious traditions. What's more definitive about the ceremony was its emphasis on subsuming individual will to the needs of the whole. This was common in many religious orders and in secret societies. But there's actually little emphasis here on secrets. Perhaps that's because this rule and the initiation ceremony it describes were designed for public, or at least somewhat open, consumption. Remember the use of French vernacular over a more esoteric Latin, as well as the simple fact that the rule was written out, copied, and distributed fairly freely amongst different chapters of the order, exposing it to civilians along the way. But that doesn't mean the order didn't have its hidden mysteries, too. Coming up, we'll discuss political shifts in Europe and the Middle East, and the rise of suspicions about what the Knights Templar were really doing behind closed doors. Now, back to the story. From 1120 to 1291, the Knights Templar flourished, growing from a small order of religious knights into one of the most powerful landholders in Europe and the Middle East. They became bankers as well, lending across Europe and the Holy Land, and stocking up coin all the while. Ostensibly, their carefully codified rituals and practices weren't particularly secret. As holy men, they had nothing to hide after all. But their rule makes the interesting stipulation that discussions at chapter meetings were to be strictly kept amongst the brothers. That can be explained by the need to safeguard sensitive military information, but it also indicates that there are many discussions and perhaps practices of the Knights that have been indelibly lost to time, hidden behind the temple doors. And while there's no reason to believe that the regulations of the rule were false, there's also the possibility that the order had other, more closely held secrets. But at least through the 13th century, none of the Knights' contemporaries seemed to consider the possibility of Templar secrets. There were no whispers of covert rituals that occurred when no one but the brothers were watching. No one seemed to be thinking about the fact that power can corrupt, even in an organization with the most virtuous of founding principles. Then, in 1291, something changed. The Christian Middle East disappeared. Despite all the money and manpower Europe poured into it, the fight in the Holy Land had been turning against the Crusaders since the mid-12th century. 
These losses came to a head in 1291. Aku, the last Christian base of power in the region, fell to the Muslim Mamluks. The Knights Templar were forced to evacuate their final strongholds, the fortresses of Atlit in what's now Israel, and Tartosa in what's now Syria. The Knights had no choice but to relocate their headquarters to the island of Cyprus. These losses were devastating to the central mission of the Knights. Their raison d'etre was the fight in the Middle East for God and the Lord's holy sites on Earth. They refused to give up their ambition of regaining the Holy Land. And how could they? What else was their purpose? For centuries, they justified their ever-expanding empire of tax-free land and money by using those funds to support their role in God's work. Now the questions started to emerge. Was all this wealth really necessary for the Knights? Were their privileges warranted? Were they as essential to Christendom as they'd seemed? But while the Knights refused to admit total defeat in the Middle East, enthusiasm for the cause, after several hundred years of unproductive effort, waned and was replaced by frustrated regret. Some Christians were coming to see the Knights Templar, along with other military religious orders like the Knights Hospitaller, as a reasonable target for that frustration. Still, the Knights were deeply ingrained into local life around Europe, thanks to their lands, serfs, and banking services. It was almost inconceivable to imagine medieval society without them, both on a local and international level. The days of nine humble knights riding side by side with poor pilgrims were long in the past, if they'd even existed quite as the legends suggested. Europe was beholden to these powerful men in their white mantles and armor. But some critics started to muse on solutions to get their unbridled independence under control. The most popular solution addressed the Knights' diminishing purpose and frustration about the failed Crusades, all without disrupting life around Christendom. The idea was to merge the Knights Templar and their sometimes collaborators, sometimes rivals, the Knights Hospitaller. A merger, enthusiasts claimed, would combine the strength of the two orders. It would allow them to more efficiently fight against the Muslims and regain the Holy Land once more. This proposal had some prominent supporters around Christendom. But when in 1305, Pope Clement V took up the cause, he put new pressure behind the idea. Pope Clement sent a letter to the Grand Masters of both orders, asking that they consider the proposal. But neither master was enthusiastic. They saw the merger as impractical and as a negation of their distinct purposes. The Knights Hospitaller were a charitable order above all else. Though they took on a military role, the Knights Templar were religious warriors, though they did, like most religious orders, take on charitable work as well. Jacques de Molay, the Grand Master of the Knights Templar, argued that it would be wrong to compel a man who had joined one order to be a part of the other, considering their distinct beliefs. Plus, he argued, rivalry between the orders was productive, spurring each of them to do their own tasks better. What he didn't mention is that a merger would threaten his position as the head of one of the most powerful multinational corporations in Europe. 
Most versions of proposed merger plan inserted an external leader as the head of the new combined organization, who would presumably be able to eliminate the rivalry between the orders and help manage the process of pooling their resources. By all accounts, up until 1305, Mole was apparently a genuine, religiously motivated crusader. Whatever ulterior intentions he may have had, he cared about the mission of the order and was determined to execute it. So he explained to the Pope by letter. When Clement V summoned Mole and the Grand Master of the Knights Hospitaller to discuss the merger in person, Mole hastened to Avignon, then the papal seat of power, intent on driving his points home and protecting his brothers. He arrived early in 1307, ready to face whatever was ahead, but vastly unprepared for the violent accusations and actual violence he would encounter. Meanwhile, everywhere from the Iberian Peninsula to Cyprus, the order was still initiating new members, still governing them according to the rules, both Latin and French. Still claiming to be a holy vehicle of the Lord's work. Even by early 1307, there were few people in Christendom who questioned these public-facing practices and stances. But by the summer of that year, that finally started to change. At least a few people started to question those secret chapter meetings. They started to wonder if perhaps the Templars held secondary secret initiation ceremonies. They even turned their gazes to the bedrooms of these ostensibly celibate brothers. And they asked if the Knights Templars were really doing the work of God. Or if something very different was happening. Thanks again for tuning in to Secret Societies. We'll be back next week with part two of the Knights Templar. We'll see how the society's incredibly powerful position was devastated in one fell stroke. And the name Knights Templar was sullied forever. For more information on the Knights Templar, amongst the many sources we used, we found Malcolm Barber's book, The New Knighthood, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Secret Societies and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite ParCast originals, like Secret Societies, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Secret Societies on Spotify, just open the app and type Secret Societies in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Secret Societies was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Secret Societies was written by Nora Battelle, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Mm-hmm.